and welcome to What Goes Around podcast and we've got another bumper edition for you today. My name is Eamon Murtagh. I'm Anne Frankenstein. And we are going to drill down into drill music today and ask the big question, is it ever right for the police to vet the lyrics of the artist? We also talk about lockdown fashion and how we are no longer using clothes to express the music that we love. We're only using clothes to uh, express our need for extreme comfort in these difficult times. And this week's feature is Make Me Believe. And when we started making Make Me Believe pieces, the one thing that we started off by saying was that everyone thinks they like all sorts of music until the juggernaut of free jazz runs them over. And today, the day of reckoning has come. Sammy Stein is going to tell us how to believe in free jazz. And we have a wonderful guest with us today, the amazing Malik Al-Nasir, protege of Gil Scott Heron, who has had an amazing life, is sharing his phonographic memories with us. Uh, Eamon, I think it's time to pod. Let's pod the living heck out of it. Let's do it. Pod all over the place. Pod it, pod it, pod it, pod it, pod it. Eamon Murta. What did you say? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just looking for a new way to say it. Uh, I'm sorry. That made me laugh. <laughs> well, go on then. What goes around? Well, what goes around? Um, I found something very interesting last night at about five minutes to 12, because that's when you put interesting content on the BBC, apparently. Um, a fabulous little documentary, uh, which was made for BBC Three, called Defending Digger D. And I thought it tied in rather nicely with some of the things we were talking about in regards to lyrics and uh, not so nice, perhaps quite naughty or mean lyrics um, that we talked about before. So Defending Digger D is about a drill rapper. And um, of course, drill is like the elder brother to gangster rap. Um, It's even nastier and even more scary. And uh, there's lots of shooting and hoeing and all that kind of stuff. But it's a big thing now. It started in Chicago and now it's also a big thing over here. The London scene is pumping. The police do not like it and they have said so on many occasions. Cressida Dick, the head... <laughs> I love that name. Cressida Dick, Damon. the head of... Which <laughs> is, is, you know, a policeman called Dick. I've got to laugh. Cressida Dick, uh, she uh, has spoken out about drill before and this sort of... Um, postcode area baiting that goes on within the drill scene where they you know different crews from different parts of London basically diss each other on little YouTube vids and stuff and that she says leads to more violence well this documentary was fascinating so this guy he's 19 right he's 19 he's been in prison he went first went into prison when he was 17 and he's kind of been in and out three times so far so he's getting good at it. He's like a real sensation. He's had like uh, two million views of his last uh, uh, rap video. I sound like my granddad, rap video. This, <laughs> I was going to say, and when you said that they're little YouTube videos, you probably get some violence done against you if they ever listen to I don't want to mess with the drill boys, I'm telling you that now. <laughs> but basically, he's, he's, you know, he's phenomenally successful uh, at a very young age, and he's really, like, he's, he's on the Zeke guys for a lot of kids out there. And his lyrics are quite often very controversial and often talk about, you know, his life of crime. And he admits himself in the in the video that, when he started, he perhaps was just kind of making stuff up. But as he grew older, he didn't have to make so much stuff up mm. because uh, he was being drawn more and more into the world of crime. Anyway, he's trying to sort his life out and get himself straight. And here's where it gets interesting. So this documentary 
follows him the moment he's released from Feltham Young Offenders Prison. He gets released on the maddest bail conditions I've ever heard. So bear in mind, this is a London boy. Mm. They re- they release him on the condition that he moves to Norwich. <laughs> Specifically Norwich. He has to go to Norwich, nowhere else. Specifically Norwich. It's like, get to the low countries. <laughs> you, flatlands now. That'll keep you out of trouble. I mean, it's a real, I mean, I just think it's odd. But, you know... So he, he comes from London and he's got to move down to Norwich to come out of prison. Not only that, he's got to report into the Norwich police station or whatever it is, like sort of every three hours or something. It's like really heavy, heavy duty restrictions. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that certain subjects, motifs, words and images he is not allowed to use anymore in his art. So he is not allowed to mention certain postcodes. He's not allowed to um, say anything that might incite or glamorise violence. He's not allowed, you know, a a long list of things. It's faintly ridiculous, to be Mm. quite honest. Um, And there's, you know, these amazing scenes where he's, he's, he's got this very patient and understanding lawyer. And he's having to explain what the lyrics are to them before he like, he can't just he can't just post something up on social media he's got to send all his lyrics to a solicitor and say will i be all right saying this oh and, and it, you know it's hilarious because obviously you've got you know a, a well-trained legal mind in a very straight and ordered world talking to this young scallion who's given it all of the roadman speak and all that kind of thing and um they're kind of having to translate stuff and decide whether it's whether it's too risky to say. And some of it is obvious, you know, like he can't like he literally can't mention certain postcodes nor go to certain postcodes in London. Um, uh, but he also if he says anything that is deemed to be encouraging violence, that's him back inside straight away. And if he says anything at all along those lines, he's in big trouble. And it leads to the farcical situation that he's talking to a lawyer and he's saying things, or she's reading out um, sort of uh, the lyrics he sent. So it says here, you're killing me. And he's like, yeah, I I mean, he's making me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a musical boner killer. Yeah. And then, you know, there was another thing where I I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like um, uh, put them in, put them in a coffin. But it's not what, we would expect it's actually mm. part it's a meme that goes round, and it, it's it's not at all about actually killing people and putting them in coffins in that way it's it so we talked about the golden age of gangster rap and i remember all the ferrari and all that sort of stuff mm. and the pmrc and the stickers on all the albums and all that sort of thing but now i i'm just kind of shocked that it's got to the stage where the policeman de popo has to look at your lyrics bef- and you, before you can even post them that is just mad. I mean, obviously, they're trying to make an example of him, but it's just, a, but, oh, it just seems like such a cack handed way of doing things. I don't Doesn't know if you it? have that phrase in this country. Do you say cack handed here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, but, I do. I'm over. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, you understand me, and that's the main thing. No one else is listening. It's no, just you exactly. and me. Um, but, Apart uh, from the people in Mauritius, because we're two. number one Thank in Mauritius. You, Mauritius. Yeah, number one. Mauritius. We will come and we will come and tour. We'll come and stay with you. We'll stay in your houses, plural. Yeah. Whoever you are, we'll come and visit you. I, I don't. Anytime. I don't. I don't think they were plural. I think we just. <laughs> I think we were just number one 
in Mauritius. <laughs> and we should thank that listener very thank much. You, thank you, Mauritius. Thank oh, you, Mauritius. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. What's the name of this town? <laughs> uh, surely they're trying to make an example of him to try and eradicate drill rap as a genre. Is that not the objective rather than being like, well, you can make your drill rap as long as you just make music about laughing and having fun. You know, surely they're just trying to make it so difficult for him to exist in this genre that well, they're trying to kind of snuff it out completely? It's not just him. Uh, to give you another example, there's uh, an act called Skengdu and AM, who are drill rappers, mm. and they got sentenced for playing their own song. <laughs> and that is mad, isn't it? Well, what was it about? I mean, I don't... I don't... Uh, I... You know... <sighs> We all know that I'm that I'm probably a lot more conservative <laughs> than, than I'd like to than I like to make out in my normal life. But I do think like there is I I just I don't necessarily think that it's okay for musicians to be glamorizing. Vi- oh God, I sound old. Like not glamorizing it, but why should a genre exist? specifically to incite violence and to sort of bait people and stuff like gangster rap yeah you know a lot of a lot of it was about violence and stuff but it was also about kind of oh I don't know I don't know anything about drill rap (laughs) I'm gonna stop talking now (laughs) but I do like what can they do you know because like does it play a hand in in um in creating violent scenarios in the UK like it does it it does it play a big part in the issues with violence that are going on now like is there not something to be said to sort of for sort of um trying to to pull it down off its pedestal a little bit well i mean the the documentary was quite good actually in that um they didn't try even though it's called defending diggity mm. they didn't really try and just claim oh look there's no harm here mm. you know uh, his his manager who rather brilliantly is called bills um <laughs> <laughs> his manager was saying look, look it might it might incentivize, it might not. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's a very hard correlation to prove, I think. And But what gets me is, oh, I don't know, I'm really uncomfortable with the state telling an artist what they can do. Because the song, it's not real. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of imagination spoken out loud. Is it yeah. though? If he's baiting specific postcodes, you know, mm. uh, and 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 sort of riling up specific gangs, is that imagination? Like, if someone is getting up on a pulpit and like spewing out hate hate speech at specific groups and mm. like making genuine threats of violence, but they were saying it, not rapping it, like, would that be okay? Yeah, I mean, it is a tricky old thing, isn't it? It's really because, part, like I said, there's part of me that is just really, really uncomfortable with the art being messed with Mm. but as you say you know you can't you can't say any old thing you like in a public forum anyway Mm. um but i don't see the kind of levels of censorship anywhere else pretty much in Mm. art you know not not in this country anyway so they had this guy on newsnight and his name brilliantly was called drill minister <laughs> and uh, you know they, they had a, a lovely interview with him, uh, and he was basically saying, you know, do we, why can't we say what we like? You know, and mm. uh, there is a big knife crime epidemic, and maybe this fuels it, maybe it doesn't. Um, it's such a moot point. I don't think you could really prove it either way. But I know the nature of young men when they're angry, and certainly, you know, YouTube wasn't around when I was a lad, but. Um, if it was, I dare say people would say things on there and that would lead to fights. Mm. Um, 
So it's very, very tricky. Uh, the best thing about the uh, drill minister guy being on Newsnight is that uh, a lot of the, the drill guys, because it's it's such a taboo kind of music, a lot of them actually disguise their faces and stuff. So they wear like masks and balaclavas mm-hmm. and stuff when they're doing all this. And the guy on Newsnight, rather fabulously, he has a, there's a little interview and then he's <laughs> he's got his balaclava on, but he forgets he's got his balaclava and then he tries to take a drink of water. <laughs> 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 it's, it's one of the most perfect moments on television I've ever seen. Oh, dear. Just what a strange, strange world we live in that um, mm. you you have to run your, you know, your poetry past a policeman before you can say it. I think that's incredible. That is very weird. Must watch that doc. Yes, it's called Defending Digger D. Uh, it's on iPlayer. And um, yeah, I don't know why they put it on at 5 to 12. It's like the most interesting thing I've seen on BBC in quite a while. You know, but they stuck it away on a Sunday night at 5 to 12. Well worth a look. Dig it out. And um, we'll put in the show notes as well the clip that shows the, uh, the guy <laughs> trying to drink the water on his night because that is gold. Frankenstein, lady of jazz. What goes around? <laughs> well, I've been thinking a lot. I, when we first started this podcast, uh, we, we talked a little bit about um, signifying with your outfits and clothes and belonging to different sort of subgroups and cultural groups when you're growing up and how important clothes are and stuff like that. And it just occurred to me recently. So I, I've um, cultivated this uh, lockdown look, which I'm really attached to. And I basically <laughs> have four four different well it's they're the same four tracksuits four tracksuits that are the exact same they're like stonewashed black I wear them with neon socks I have like neon like vault uh, yellow socks neon green socks neon orange socks and then I wear the same trainers every single day and you know I have a lot of clothes which I don't wear because all I wear these days is tracksuits sometimes when I go and pick up my post from the mail room I put on a a necklace just to make it look like (laughs) I've actually got dressed (laughs) Um, but the necklace is all it's all about the accessories isn't it this is well that's what Coco Chanel always said so that's who I'm channeling with this tracksuit um but it just made me think like I don't know what kind of music people think I listen to when I look like Tony Soprano (laughs) off duty but it just I just don't don't really care at all about it anymore it just made me think how 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 distant it seems the idea that you get dressed up a combination of of getting older and what lockdown has done to me it just seems so hilarious to me that I would try and signify anything with my clothes except for I covered up my body you're welcome well yeah it's nice to know you really let yourself go like (laughs) I'm I've this is the MTV jumper thing all over again I have not let myself go this is a great outfit and I look great I'm just saying it's probably quite ambiguous to onlookers you sound like a like a a Liverpool football fan from the <laughs> Do you know a shell suit? Actually, I've been eyeing up shell suits on uh, on various vintage sites, so don't tempt me. Um, I used to have one, it was an Adidas one, and it had like poppers all down the side, and that was fantastic because if you're feeling frisky, you could just rip the whole trouser off in one foul swoop. There's an image. 
<laughs> well, so we came round to the house once. My, my friend Fiona came round, and uh, and you ripped your trousers well, off, Adder. Well, I did, but because uh, <laughs> she's a Man United fan, so she came to watch the Man United match, and I had me, I had some shorts on, and then I, I pulled my tracky bottoms over it, and then just before kickoff, I stood up and dramatically removed my trousers <laughs> in one foul sweep, and the look on her face was absolutely priceless. Oh, we need more times like that. Clothes, mm. clothes for clothes for humour and, and good times. You also, know, I think you know, I'm. I'm really with you on the fact, let's just get comfy. Yeah. Let's get yeah. comfy, you know. Just, I've never been able to wear a uniform very well. Mm-hmm. When I was at school, I was the kid that, um, you know, I tied my tie so the thin end was at the front, not the fat end. <laughs> yeah, it had to be the thin one. I was supposed to wear um, blue and black and I wore grey. Uh, you know, just any white terry toweling socks and loafers that was me all over do you know what i mean but it was it was the 80s it was that was that, that was that was a good look then but i've never been able to to do the uniform thing i, I can't stand shirts mm. i absolutely hate shirts to the point where when it came to finding a proper job for myself and actually doing something one of the reasons i got into computer games was because um my friend works in a computers game company and i noticed they didn't wear suits there was no shirts, no ties. They could go in in sports. They go in how they like. And you believe you, I, I've seen some people go into computer games offices wearing clothes that they have worn for a long time. <laughs> um, men who have not been outside and have spent the entire week in a darkened room typing code. But, you know, that was literally... One, the, the two reasons I went for that career, I went for that job, were because I didn't have to wear a uniform. And when I went to the office to, to go and see how it all worked... I noticed that everyone was sat at their desk with headphones on. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you can sit and listen to music all day? I'm in. So those are literally the two reasons I became a computer games designer. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like computer games as well. I did at the time. It kind of beat that out of me eventually. <laughs> like how I feel about music now. Yeah, well, oh, oh see, that's... I, I joke, honestly, I joke. Yeah, I, I have <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to add a little joke warning every time I make a joke after yeah, my OMD remark the other yeah, day. I know that, that you will never live down the OMD remark. You know, like, the crowd <laughs> sorry, of angry electro poppers <laughs> waving synthesizers outside the house now. Oh dear. But I think being comfy in your clothes is absolutely but key the- to being happy. I agree. And I, you know, I, I went to both the schools I went to growing up didn't have uniforms and I couldn't have crowbarred myself into a pair of smart trousers if I tried. I did wear a tie sometimes for leisure, you know, um, signifying purposes for mod, mod purposes. But yeah, I couldn't. But the, isn't, the, isn't it ironic that you and I both have a uniform now? You with your black T-shirts, me with my tracksuit <laughs> and neon socks. That's it. That's it. That's my only concession to uniforms. Is if I'm playing in a, in a posh place, a hotel or something, then I will don my black t-shirt. <laughs> you know, because I, I don't like to wear logos in those sort of places. You know. But what are you saying with your clothes these days? What message do you think? You know, and you are a man. I mean, it's not like you. You know, you you mentioned you've never been into uniforms, but like you've had many a diverse range of looks over the well, years. Looks, you've said it. You've yeah, said a lot with your clothes. Yeah. Uh, but like, what what do you think your clothes say about you now? What what message do you think you you convey when that traditionally or what i wore like when i was a goth or when i was a raver or whatever it was, it was kind of to sort of convey that i was you know um uh, sort of a rebel a kind of uh, you know someone on the edge of society living hard lives with the kids you know being real and now i just look like um uh, what's the best way to describe it like a well-stuffed scarecrow 
<laughs> I think that's that's probably the best way to. I don't know. I like it's mostly jeans and t-shirt, um, which I guess is a uniform. But one thing I have started to do because I did, I got to the stage where I just had a drawer full of identical black t-shirts. Mm. Uh, now I used to have loads and loads and loads of um, band t-shirts. In fact, I did write a blog about this for a website called My Band T-shirt run by Ian Wade and um, I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the show notes uh, because I had all these t-shirts and then um, I gave them to someone who uh, never gave them back so I kind of lost all that history and now I, I kind of ended up with, through the DJing and just having lots of black t-shirts so this very monochrome wardrobe and um, my daughter just hates it she's just like oh daddy so what well, right does she hang on she's you let your five. daughter criticize your wardrobe yeah she's five <laughs> what would she have you wear she's six now she'll kill me for that oh, um well she just said she she doesn't like black she likes um colors and she wants me to wear pink i said mm. i'm not sure i'm gonna wear many pink t-shirts you, you could get a noy t-shirt i'm sure you can get those in nice neon shades yeah, a bit, a bit of crowd rock fashion doesn't go wrong, I think. Um, I, th- I well, feel like feel like you, your six-year-old daughter would appreciate that. Yeah, I think she would. What, <laughs> I, what, I, what I have started doing is I've started um, ordering um, just some brighter things. So I've got a nice Ramrock T-shirt that's bright green. Nice. And I've got me Bad Brains bright yellow T-shirt. Yeah. And um, when the old pandemic came along, uh, my wife, Lucy, uh, who's a screen printer at Hex Screen Printing, she uh, did me a load of T-shirts saying uh, no requests. During the I love those. So good. <laughs> she did those in a, in a variety of nice colours. There's a red one and a blue one and, you know, sort of a whiny one. And, uh, you know, it, it, so I'm trying slowly to sort of come out of my um, middle-aged chrysalis as some sort of brightly coloured, gaudy old man. I, I, can't, figure, I can't wait to see this a gaudy old man this is my yeah. this is my dream for your aesthetic as well yeah yeah Frida's not to, wrong I want to blossom <laughs> I figure I've got to the age now where like I'm, I'm dare I say well you haven't obviously I'm not going to say that because I'll just get in trouble but I have definitely got to the stage where signaling how cool I am is a, is a losing game <laughs> well this is how I feel but then again it's like you know isn't isn't not caring isn't that what what makes you cool I'll wear some bright colours. I'll have some fun with it and um, and enjoy it really because I've I've been a goth already. There's no point doing back again. So, uh, that's twice I've gone into the world of monochrome, and I think I think I, maybe this is a recurring theme. So I'm a goth, right? And then I become a raver, and it's all global hypercar. Oh yeah, it all comes back around. And then, and then I get to middle aged hotel DJ, and I'm all in black again. <laughs> and now here I am. Like some sort of um, Quentin Crisp reborn, you know, <laughs> suddenly wearing pink and yellow and blue. And I'm going to be fucking fabulous, love. That's how we all see you as Quentin Crisp reborn. I'm so glad that you're, you look as well. Well, you know what? I've been a goth too. And, you know, I was a very, very bad mod. That whole look didn't suit me at all. But now I feel like I'm coming back to my roots with my track suits and possibly shell suits and gold chains. And I'm moving into full on disco rap territory. Disco rap. And that's what you I did. I did have some fake gazelles. Maybe it's time to get some real ones. I want to see you in one of those, um, those Kappa track suits, shell suits, you know. I want you in Kappa. I want you to have a Kangol hat, a big fucking fat gold chain. Yeah, loads of rings, some some fresh Adidas, but you know the laces not not in them. You know, <laughs> I think everyone out there should um, should have a look in their wardrobe and think. Well, we've all been on lockdown. We've all been. Ty- no one's been looking at us for a long, long time. 
when we come out of this little chrysalis, let's come out fabulous. Yeah. I'm with you. Cover your body in something fabulous. Cover yeah. it though, yeah. but in something fabulous. <laughs> to cover it though, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely cover it. <laughs> You've been covering your body in tattoos for years, though, so... Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe probably, I don't need clothes. do a more risque show than I could. <laughs> well, I'm... this is my thing for 2021, then. Maybe I'll I'll, um, I'll, I'll uh, let go of the tracksuit altogether and just... No, let no, it let's combine out. the two. Let's combine the two, because if you get the ones with the poppers and you can do that instant strip thing, <laughs> then you've got both looks in one. <laughs> Where are we going with this? I think we should stop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, as Karen Arthur says, where you're happy. So Indeed. that's what we're saying too, yeah? I'm into it. Now it's time for one of our favourite segments on the podcast, Make Me Believe, where we invite an expert in a certain polarising genre of music to uh, convince us that it's worth getting into. And um, today's edition is particularly polarising. We've invited the brilliant uh, journalist and writer and jazz fan, Sammy Stein, on the podcast to make us believe in free jazz. She is the writer of many wonderful books about jazz music. Her latest one with Debbie Burke is called Gender Disparity in UK Jazz. She really knows her stuff and she is so passionate about free jazz. And uh, I think you will be as well after you hear this piece. And there's also a guest appearance from her cat halfway through. So, what about free jazz? What does free jazz do? Well, it unites for one thing. It unites us in a way no other mini-genre does. It links the history of jazz with people like Ornette Coleman, Albert Eiler from America, and European players like Broetzmann, Gustafsson. So it links historical music to the present. It links classical with jazz. I once watched a video of Mel Davis and he talked about improvisation, which is a key element of free jazz, well, all jazz. And he talked about improvising around a key, a chord, a phrase. And classical music and free jazz are linked so much. So free jazz is composition, but it is on the spot, yet it combines similar rules of harmonics and flow. With classical music, the musician is able to go back in time and recompose or re-improvise their work. So the result of that has a particular character where you can perceive the process where rethinking or reformatting was done. The same goes for what is considered totally improvised music. So not being able to go back in time and rethink the work. The musician composes and improvises on the spot, on the go, under a particular creative nervous tension that gives the music its distinct character. Mm-hmm. 
And I agree, there's a defining line between noise and music. And sometimes free jazz comes so close to that line. But you cannot play free jazz without first knowing music. How to pitch a harmonic, where to enter, what note to come in on, how not to nick someone's solo spot. But if you don't know music, it doesn't work. And you can find yourself listening to noise rather than something which is music, but also pushing at the edges. And that's what I love. I love the fact that free jazz is really, it's kind of destructured structure. And it just pushes and pushes. But I find it odd when people say things like, with free jazz, there aren't rules, because of course there are. Otherwise, as I said, it's just noise, it's not music. So while free jazz may not adhere to fixed harmonics and key changes, they can be quite sudden, it's a reflection of the moment, that player, that time. Free players still play using intervals and harmonies, but they also play the notes in between. So the microtones, which your brain kind of knows are there, but you're not able to be dictated to by composition and written music. Free players find these by intonation or changing their embouchure, pushing their instruments. I mean, many cultures have instruments which can play more notes than our Western instruments, the oud, the sitar, etc. And if you can find those notes, the music is more complete somehow. So free jazz combines a huge amount of musical understanding and expression. Free jazz uses disharmonics and harmonics. It uses major sevenths and minor thirds, but players know when to do so. Because they're musicians, they're not just people messing about. So there's always that link with the root key, the root chord, or just a root note even. So there's that touch of returning, a sense of familiarity. As even though many trails are blazed, there comes a time, or several times when you're listening, when the familiarity of the root of the track is heard. And you find you understand. Free music also takes you to someplace else and I find often as I listen to free jazz players like Isla, People Band, Broatsman, Gustafsson and others like Ivo Perelman that you're taken somewhere else and that each listen reveals another layer. You tune in to another part of the music or hear another instrument as it emerges. It's like an adventure. Of course, some recordings you never want to hear again, but as an example, Albert Isler's Summertime is still one of the most sublime pieces of free jazz because it always respects the original number, but it tells Isler's interpretation. And I feel he's trying to get people to understand that, yeah, Gershwin wrote it to please audiences. So Gershwin was an immigrant and changed his name in order to fit in. The music he wrote was wonderful, but also constrained and the story of an enslaved mother singing her baby to sleep in this sweet, relaxed way um, to Isla was just not true. Isla added disharmonies. He twisted the central theme. He made it sound not quite so sweet, whilst always remembering and respecting the original composition. So, in his mind, I feel he told a truer story. 
And I remember hearing it for the first time and being completely mesmerised. Then in free jazz too, there's that sense of collaboration. For example, Evo Perriman often plays with Matt Shipp. And there's just, just this sense of understanding, of reading each other, interpretation. And sometimes they almost jump on the other's note before they enter. And, and to me, that's a real essence of, of free jazz. And watching that communication happen, the audience just feels part of it. Free jazz is complicated, and yet it isn't so long as you obey some rules. And there have to be rules or it's not music. Then you can challenge your instrument, the ears, and your intuition. You can try a different path with a freedom not afforded to musicians in other genres. And when the audience goes with your musician or group on the same path, it's magical and it won't happen again the same, ever. And there are people who dislike free playing style. That's fine. Just like there are people who don't like opera or folk music. It's all fine. I think free jazz caters for people who like experimentation. They like to hear how music reflects the mood and audiences vibe the moment of playing. It breaks down conventions and actually, I think it's the future of jazz music. There's so many brilliant players coming up, young people, and it's just brilliant. When you have conventions, you become limited. And whilst free jazz applies the rules of music, it also allows a certain freedom of playing. You can stretch the instrument, try a new idea, which is not written down, sometimes can't be written down. People like to label music and free jazz comes under a lot of different labels. But the point of free jazz, I think, is that labels don't count to some extent because you play as you feel, from the heart. And this gives a real sense of communication to the listener. So I hope that explains a little bit of why free jazz is pretty special to me.
Sharing his phonographic memories with us today is a revered Liverpool-based filmmaker, author and poet, in fact, a mentee and friend of Gil Scott Heron, who credits Gil with saving his life. When not in lockdown, he tours and performs with his group Malik and the OGs, and he's written extensively about his personal history. In fact, he has two books on the way, uh, one called Searching for My Slave Roots and one about his relationship with Gil Scott Heron called Letters to Gil, both soon to be published with William Collins. Uh, He's also just told us he's doing a PhD at the moment, so he's about to get even more busy than he already is. And so it's a privilege uh, to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Malik Al Nasser. Uh, Thank you so much, Anne. It's been um, an absolute pleasure to be invited on your show and thrilled to be here with you and your audience today. Oh, it's a privilege. And tell us before we get... So we've asked you, obviously, to pick three three mm-hmm. tracks to share as your phonographic memories. Um, mm-hmm. But can you tell us first, what's your PhD that you're doing among all the other things you've got going on at the moment? Yeah, I was fortunate to be accepted at Cambridge University to do uh-huh. a PhD in history. Um, and the subject of my book, my second book that I'm going to be doing next year, Searching for My Slave Roots, uh, was about my quest back to Africa, uh, back to the Caribbean, uh, South America, to Guyana, to trace my ancestry back through slavery. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an article on the BBC called Searching for My Slave Roots. It kind of went viral, did about a million and a half reads. um, (laughs) And as a result of that, that kind of precipitated the book deal with William Collins. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the PhD is is also another um, variant of what I'll be doing with that because I'm studying um, a particular period of um, of my slave ancestry yeah. uh, between 1790 and 1840 and I'm going to be looking at you know how Guyana and the sugar and slave trade contributed to the wider slave trade during during that period. Uh, so I'm doing that at Cambridge at St. Catherine's College. You're deep into your own personal history then so it's like the perfect juncture to ask you about songs from your past. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's been, I always look at songs as being sort of like the soundtrack to your life, you mm. know, you can, you can look back to certain periods in your life and, um, and, and reflect upon memories, you know, sometimes it's a smell, a taste, a, a thought, a person, um, but more generally, there's a song there. And, um, you know, there's a particular sort of period on, on my journey, particularly when I first went back to Africa, I was a merchant seaman at the time, was back in the 80s, I was on a ship, wow. and we were sailing backwards and forwards between America um, and uh, West Africa on what would be, in slavery terms, the Middle Passage, um, where the slaves were transported. So I was going out of Angola, going into Virginia, um, and through the Caribbean on the way. And this particular track that I've selected for my first track um, was was a song that I used to listen to in the afternoon um, on the poop deck, which is the rear end of the ship. And we'd go out when we had a couple of hours off in the afternoon, and we'd just lie on the on the decks with a couple of beers, sunbathe, and just listen to music. And, and, you know, it's flat calm on the equator. So it's a beautiful, you know, soft journey, you know, nice sailing, easy, easy going. And you want some easy listening. So yeah, I tuned into Pat Matheny, um, yeah. First Circle. Yeah. That just sounds delicious. That sounds like such a nice way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open air, couple beers, beautiful sea, nice music. Ah.
going to sound like it wasn't a very hard job. <laughs> I presume it was. Well, you know, we used to we used to start work at six in the morning, um, and then we'd work from six in the morning till twelve in the afternoon. Um, and after the lunch service, um, we'd have um, three hours off till three in the afternoon. And then we'd work from three till six. So we still worked a sort of nine hour day. Um, mm. It's just that we had those those breaks in the afternoon, and um, you know, whenever we were sailing during the during the summer or if we were down on the equator where it's always sunny um we would take advantage of those few hours in the afternoon mm-hmm. to just chill out on the deck and relax and just take in some tunes and um, whenever i think back to that period of me going between africa and, and america pat Matheny always comes to mind because it was just mm-hmm. such easy listening it was so mellow and it kind of really just fit the scene that that we were in and the kind of picture that he's painting with the musical landscape in the in the in the um, in in the track uh, mm. first circle mm. um, was very much conducive to the actual environmental landscape that I was in. If I was in a city environment where it was bustling or on the tube or something, that would not be the tune to listen to. Mm. But mm. in that context, when you just want to chill out and be mellow and enjoy the sunshine and sail along, you know, um, that this this is this is the track for you. Amazing, wonderful. Oh, interesting and like so you you're you're going backwards because this is um i always have to like uh you know uh, caveat things for younger younger listeners um mm-hmm. th- there was a time when the internet didn't exist and um you know <laughs> the 80s there you are <laughs> traveling around the world from port to port um mm-hmm. i mean traditionally a lot of music is discovered in that way like, especially liverpool is famous for being this hub where blues and and rock and roll came in through that port um, and then disseminated, you know, out across the rest of the land. Um, w- Absolutely. Were you discovering things like this kind of uh, jazz funk kind of style? Or did you find that on your way? Did you already know about these things? Or, or was that something that was um, was actually connected with all that travel you were doing? All of the above. Um, <laughs> my, my father was a merchant seaman. Everyone's dad was either a merchant seaman or a docker in Liverpool. Um, that was the lifeblood of the city. And it's, you know, since King John established Liverpool in the 12th century, you know, and gave it its sort of official mandate to make it a, you know, a town. Um, Liverpool has been a seafaring nation. So, um, you know, seamen from all over the world came in and they brought their stuff with them. Uh, my earliest childhood memories were my father bringing home, you know, the um, Calypso reggae. Um, mm-hmm. on 10 inch vinyl now oh. for people who don't know what that is vinyl is a thing that we used to put music on <laughs> to play and uh, for those who know about right. vinyl they will know 7 inches and, 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 and 12 inches they may not know 10 inches so mm. 10 inch was this rock hard brittle vinyl that they used to have in the 1950s that you know you played it at 78 RPM mm. you would hear all the old calypso you know island woman making me forget who I am you know all those kinds Kind of things and just give me a redhead before i'm dead so there was so many calypso tracks and i grew up listening to those and that was something that was quite exclusive really to the the black seamen and, and perhaps the windrush generation you know yeah. lord kitchener and those guys came in during the the, the windrush period and they mm. brought a lot of that music in but we also had a very unique mix in liverpool because just outside liverpool we had the burton wood Air Base, which was a US Air Force base, which was established after World War II. So all the black servicemen from the US Air Force used to come into Liverpool to party. Mm. So when you went to those clubs that you're talking about, you know, from the, the late 60s, um, you know, the, the early 60s as well, you know, the Cavern Club and those, uh, you know, the Casablanca and all those clubs that were Dutch Eddies and so on in Liverpool at the time, you would get a lot of 
the blues, a lot of the jazz, a lot of the R&B um, that was coming in from America through the airbase. So when you combine that with what was coming in through the port, um, which was primarily coming from the Caribbean, um, you got this mix of jazz, blues, calypso, reggae, you know, blue beat, ska. And I think it just um, gave Liverpool a very unique kind of um, musical uh, legacy that, that just fused all of these styles together. So I suppose, you know, you could say inadvertently, subconsciously, I may well have sort of um, tended towards the likes of Pat Metheny because he's kind of jazz fusion, mm -hmm. because, you know, we're, we're, we're used to fusing lots of different styles together to come up with something quite unique. But this particular track, I mean, the guy who's playing percussion on, on, on this track is also playing a sort of, it sounds like an almost an Andean um, panpipe, but the sounds of it sound very much like the uh, what I heard when I went to Canada, which is the uh, Algonquin indigenous Indians who, um, you know, the First Nations, as they call them now, um, who would uh, produce this uh, this kind of wailing sound. I went to one of their powwows when I was on tour in Canada a couple of years ago, and where they all, they all come together and they bang their drums and they do this wailing. And I recognized and I thought, oh my God, that's just like what was on Pat Metheny's album. <laughs> and I thought, this is where he got it from. And when I started looking at like who the musicians were on the album, I I saw this guy and I thought he's from the Andes and like so the, clearly there was a there, there was a blend of these indigenous styles mixed with or, or kind of juxtaposed against that kind of uh, mellow you know smooth jazz um, and it all blended together in in this sort of cacophony of, of beautiful sound that just worked perfectly and, and, and I love that. piece of music I have to say I, I had not heard it before and uh, like I say I just lay down for quite five minutes put the headphones on and you just uh, check it all out before I came in if I next time I do it I shall imagine I'm on a poop deck somewhere <laughs> that's the thing just hearing you talk about it uh, you know your experiences in connection with that track it's so visceral even hearing you speak about it so it must just take you back there instantly when you hear that track it, it does and you know that's why I thought this was wonderful when um, you guys contacted me and yeah. said this is what you want to do and I saw the brief I thought wow this is right up my street I can sense um, smells from yeah. from that time I can yeah. I can smell the salt of the sea I can feel the the the, the, the motion of the ocean I can feel the uh, propeller on the ship you know yeah. I can see the skyline I can I can envisage the whole thing and remember exactly how it was and and it's funny how you do that how your mind makes these associations mm -hmm. between a song that you heard in a situation that you were in and then suddenly you hear that song again and it triggers that memory of that place of that thing and you suddenly just transported to being right there again and I 
I think that's something really beautiful and some one of the most wondrous things that, that comes out of music that the music is. does in a way that other things perhaps can't. Absolutely. Thank you for taking us there with you, especially in lieu of a good holiday this year. I appreciated yeah. that journey. <laughs> yeah, let's let, let that wash over us for a few yeah. minutes and, uh, and then Wonderful. We'll, we'll come back. So would you like to tell us about your second phonographic memory then? Yeah, so the second one is 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 what you would probably class as rare groove, um, in the sense that a lot of people won't know about these guys, um, Jackie Ritren and John Cartwright. Yeah. So the album was called um, International Times, and the song I chose was called In a Fire. Had you guys heard this before? I didn't yeah. know it. No, no not at all. Okay. Um, that's good. You got two out of three where we just had no clues. So, you yeah. Know, your your well, 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 points in cred is high. <laughs> it, 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 it is rare groove. So, you know, so that that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> uh, the thing about this was when I heard it, it was before it came out on the album, because, you know, they used to do back in the 80s, they used to do these pre-releases. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you'd get the stuff that they would send out to the record shops to see whether or not there was an appetite mm. for this yeah. particular type of um, music or not. And then based on that, they would make a determination as to whether or not to release it. So they used to send these cassettes. Um, yeah, for all those who don't know what a cassette is, that's these like little things with tape on them that um, used to record <laughs> sound on. Um, not as old as 10 inches, uh, but certainly <laughs> In the they, 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 they come from the era of vinyl, let's yeah. say. Go and look that one up. I think there's a wiki on it. Um, <laughs> so these audio cassettes would go around the record shops. And I used to go into a, a fantastic little sort of boutique record shop in Liverpool called Backtracks. Um, there were two record shops back to back. One was one was Backtracks and one was Probe, and they were both on Matthew Street. Um, people will know Probe Records as the famous place mm-hmm. where the, the guy from Dead or Alive, um, yeah. uh, Pete Burns, you know, used to be the guy behind the counter, and they were very much in the punky kind of you know new romantic sort of vein. And Backtracks um, was next door but one. They used to deal in like soul and R and B and rare groove. So if you were looking for something that was collectible or something quite rare, you would go, you would go to Backtracks. If you were looking for the next big thing in, um, in, in the kind of new romantic thing that was happening at the time, you would go and talk to Pete Burns at, um, at Probe. But it was all on Matthew Street. So I went in there and I would always ask the guy behind the counter, um, not for what was already out, but for what he had coming in. Mm-hmm. And he gave me what would be... By today's standards, you would probably call it a mixtape of Jackie Whitrun and John Cartwright. And I heard this album and I thought, if this doesn't get released, (laughs) it's going to be criminal. Mm. Um, It's actually one of my favourite all-time albums. Um, And this particular song, Inner Fire, again, it calls upon something quite unusual. It's got, uh, there's a a vocal in there. Um, where it's, I'm not entirely sure if it's like um, something akin to like a Buddhist chant or something, but it's definitely got some, um, you know, some foreign language in there. Um, But it's again juxtaposed against, you know, this mellow, smooth jazz, Mm. which just takes you on on a journey. But what was quite significant about it for me and where my memories come in, if you like, of this particular song is the time that it came out, um, I was 18 years old and I was homeless. So, you know, for me, the song represented a period in time um, that in some ways I'd I'd rather forget. Mm. But in other ways, it was a time that actually, um, how can I put it? It's 
it shaped mm. the life that was to come for me. Mm-hmm. And at that time, when I think back, um, at 18 years of age, you know, I'd just been in local authority care from the age of nine. I came out at the age of 18. I was semi-literate. I didn't have prospects. I had no qualifications. Um, you know, I couldn't say where I'd been to work because I'd come from a list of institutions. There was no recognizable school. So the only jobs that I could get at that time were sort of menial manual labor, washing dishes and things like that. So to see me now, 30 odd years later, um, I'm doing a PhD at Cambridge. Um, You know, I run a business, I'm a published author. I've got records out on the market. I've traveled the world, um, had a family, bought a house. You know, it's just, I'm I'm in a, a, a completely different world. And the thing about this particular track is that when I, think about this track when I hear it when I play it to my kids it automatically transports me back to that time in my life mm-hmm. uh, where I had nothing where I thought I was going nowhere uh, where the potential that was inherent within me had yet to be tapped mm-hmm. um, but the well, years have shown that um, that it was there it just needed an opportunity to be nurtured and you know unfortunately for many people um that is their reality and they don't mm. always necessarily get that opportunity and i feel a great sense of humility and, and and gratitude that i did get those opportunities and in my case it was because of my uh chance meeting at that that year with uh, with the artist Gil Scott-Heron, mm. who took me on the road with him mentored me and, and kept me under his wing right up until he passed away in in, in 2011 um, and it was through that mentoring that i developed into being the person that I am uh, today so you know when I think back to that time and I think back to that song I remember you know the kindness of Gil Scott Heron I remember the 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 moments that I met him and the pivotal um, you know point in my life where I went from being destitute homeless and completely without prospects to being the man that I am here today, just, you know, signing a major book deal with Harper Collins, you know? Mm, it's um, amazing. It's, it's, yeah, so that song takes me back. Listening and, and reading about about the the troubles you had at that time, and then listening to this track, you know it it does sound like um, a real place of escape because this is it, it's a beautiful sound, you know what I mean, and it's a calm sound, 
and it, it, it must have kind of um, given you some, some real shelter during those hard times. It did because, you know, the track is called Inner Fire, you know, the Inner Fire Burns um, and, you know, burning my heart when the music starts and then it goes into this sort of, you know, foreign language, sort of, you know, sort of Far Eastern kind of Buddhisty type chant thing. Um, and, you know, I suppose I was looking for a place of refuge at that time. I was looking for, a, you know, a, a port in the storm. I had a very tumultuous and sort of traumatic childhood. And then to be able to just put on a pair of headphones or just dim the lights and listen to a track like that, it would just take you to another place. It would, it was, you could almost have, you know, an almost out of body experience of just mm. not being you for that moment. You could lose yourself in in the vibes and the music. You know, Gil Scott Heron used to call it the vibosphere. You know, that's <laughs> that's a word that he he invented, um, which I think should be construed into at least the urban dictionary as a, you know legitimate black vernacular. Um, um, because there is a vibosphere, you know, mm. yes, we have an atmosphere, you know, we breathe the air, but there's also a vibosphere, you know, we do feel the vibes, you know, yeah. when something comes through, it penetrates, not just our, our ears, but it penetrates our soul. And it does something to us, you know, music can have, you know, a physical impact on us a psychological and emotional impact on us it can rile us up it can make us angry it can make us calm it can you know uh, you know there's a there's a whole range of emotions that you can experience when you listen to music and when you've you know had a, a sort of hardcore life similar to the one that i had particularly in childhood you know you're looking for that route out you're looking for that escape yeah. you're looking for that moment where you can just not be in that reality and that song used to take me to that place. And not just the song, I would, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd urge anyone um, to go and look for the album, International Times, and listen to the whole album, in fact, because there are so many songs on that album that, that, that actually do that. But this one in particular, I felt was, was one that, that really takes me to that place. And it reminds me of, of who I am and where I came from. Mm. And it helps me to stay grounded, that no matter what sort of successes I have or whatever sort of dizzy heights I might achieve in, in life, that I always have to remember my roots and go back yeah. to that, 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 that starting point. Yeah. Um, and that gives you that appreciation of what you've um, what you've been blessed with and also the, the, the keeps you grounded and gives you that humility yeah. to not lose yourself in the uh, in the bright lights and and, and all the other uh, sort of you know illusions that come along with the trappings of success I mean you know Gil Scott Heron obviously we're, we're huge fans as many people are he's been lauded before by many guests on this podcast and he's one of those artists who People might say, oh, his music changed my life. But I mean, he literally came into your life, he physically came into your life and changed it. And I know you've, you've obviously told this story many times, but before we get to your next track, can you just tell us a little bit about that meeting and how that came about and what happened afterwards? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, it was in the post-riot Liverpool. You know, we'd had the Toxteth riots in 81. Um, Toxteth was very run down. You know, the black community were very um, disenfranchised. And, you know, at the time, there'd been a lot of police brutality and a lot of hostility. Uh, between the police and the black community. So after the Toxteth riots, um, you know, black people were looking for a voice. They were looking for an outlet. They were looking for um, a, a way to be heard. And Gil Scott Heron in 1984, three years after the riots, came to Liverpool to perform at the, um, the Royal Court Theatre. And uh, there was a great photographer uh, in Liverpool who used to run around Liverpool shooting black and white um, called Penny Potter. She's passed away now. She was the girlfriend of a, a friend of my brother's. And uh, she was outside the show. I turned up at the show. I had no t 
ticket, no money. I was living in a hostel for the homeless. Um, I just, you know, was determined to get inside that show. And I begged Penny to like sort of get me in and she had a backstage pass, so she snuck me in. And um, by one, you know, um, serendipitous turn of events after another, uh, I managed to meet Gil. And, um, you know, I talked to him about the riots and he was very interested. He'd been meeting meeting with the uh, Liverpool Black Caucus before the show and um, he wore their T-shirt on the show. And he was very much interested in understanding what had gone on. So, you know, I took him around the riot area. We did a tour of the streets. I gave him a running commentary on Liverpool Black History. And the following day, he and the band came to my friend's apartment and I cooked a meal for them and uh, when he tried to give me some money I refused the money and then he said uh, you know he said we're going to go to Europe for a week and then when we come back we're doing a whole tour of the UK and I want you to come on tour Um, and that was it he came on tour and then after that he just treated me like I was his son you know he just he mentored me for many years he trained me taught me I toured with him in America I went through being a roadie I became the road manager I ended up tour managing um, and we recorded together as well I wrote um, a raft of poetry um, under his mentor you know his mentorship and I was using the poetry to learn to become literate so I could go to college and university Um, and one of the poems I wrote was one called black and blue um which he recorded um so i have a recording of of my song and i put it out on an album mm-hmm. in 2015 called rhythms of the diaspora volumes one and two uh featuring gil scott heron the last poets um and it was all my material that i developed that body of work that i developed during that period under his mentorship when i was learning to read and write and using poetry to do it and i also published it in 2004 um, in a book called Ordinary Guy. So there was quite a lot of, um, you know, synergies between um, what I was doing with Gil and my artistic and creative development, as well as my personal development and academic development. And, you know, it was kind of like, he was just, you know, he was a mentor, but he was like a kind of a one-stop shop for life. You know, <laughs> I got the political activism, you know, to geopolitical situations, what was going on in the world. He, I studied his work, you know, I had the unique vantage point that when I listened to a song and he was talking about it, global affair I was able to question him on it I was then able to go away and study it I was then able to come back and argue with him about it we did that and that process carried on right up until he passed away in 2011 so you know people ask me oh where did you study economics where did you study history where did you study this I'm like Gil Scott Heron that's where I studied that (laughs) that's amazing that's that's some some form tutor that's very good that's incredible tell us about your your final choice then please Malik yeah, so this final choice now is another track that sort of takes me back to that early period, probably a little bit earlier before I met Gil Scott Heron, um, which is which is Stanley Clark, The Streets of Philadelphia. And there's a few interesting points about this. My brother, um, Reynolds, was a, a bass player. Um, he played with a few of the Liverpool bands like Pete Wiley and the Mighty War, and he mm. played with the Lightning Seeds and uh, Tiempo Libre and a few other bands that came out of Liverpool. But... In these early days, he, I was 16, he was 17, he was learning to play the bass. So Stanley Clark was like one of his heroes, um, as was Robbie Gordon, Gil Scott Heron's bass player, Larry Graham from, you know, Graham Central course, Station yeah. and, uh, you know, Victor Wotton and a few others. But Stanley Clark brought out this um, this this album and, and on it was this track, The Streets of Philadelphia. And it always conjured up for me an image of this place, this this kind of, you know, this place that was far beyond anything that I knew, that was that was far beyond, you know, Britain and Liverpool. And I always wanted to get there. 
And then it was a few years later that I found myself on tour with Gill in, in 1988. Um, we did a joint tour between, um, it was it was Gil Scott and Richie Havens. Amazing. And so, you know, I didn't even know who Richie Havens was. You know, I kind of met him on the tour. Uh, I think I arrived in, um, we were doing this place called the Intermediate Arts Center in um, Huntington in, in New York. And kind uh, of come backstage, and there was this guy in this like dashiki. He looked like Marvin Gaye on "What's Going On," you know, with the, with the goofy <laughs> yeah. hat on and stuff, you know. And I stood between him and Gil, and I'm kind of wondering what you know who this guy was and what was going on. And it was just this silence, you know. And then the next thing, uh, you know, Gil said, "Hey, yeah, man, this is Brother Mark." You know, that was my name at the time before I converted to Islam and became Malik. Um, Brother Mark, man, brother, we met on the road, man. Brother, man was looking for the truth, you know. And then Richie Havens just, you know, he nodded his head and just said, yeah, man, where it should be, man, where it should be. And that was all he said. And it was like, I'm stuck between these two sorts of titans, you know, and I'm in the middle of it in this sort of awkward silence. And they're communicating with each other with, you know, in the vibosphere, you know, with some other kind of like, you know, language that I didn't even understand. And I did this whole tour with this guy only to find out years later uh, when I'm sort of in the HMV thumbing through the DVDs. I got the DVD for Woodstock Mm -hmm. and the opening act on Woodstock on that most iconic gig in 69 of all time is like Richie Havens. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, um, and, and storms it. Oh, it's incredible! It, it's, it was just a moment in history, in musical history. It was epic, yeah. uh, and and he does this um, this slave song, you know, uh, "Motherless Child," mm. you know, which was um, used to be described as like a cadence of sorrow. It's what the slaves used to sing in the fields, you know. Mm. And, and I heard this, and years later, um, I got together with Orphy Robinson, who helped me form my band, Malik and the OGs. And uh, we went in the studio together and we did a rendition of it, uh, but I flipped it and interspersed some of my poetry into it as well and did my my own version of Motherless Child, did that as a tribute to Richie Havens. But that year, when I met Richie um, on the tour, as I say, I didn't know who he was. We just did this tour together. He was great. He was lovely. He hardly ever spoke. Whatever you asked him, he would just say, hey, brother man, just let it be what it is. Um, (laughs) But then we got to do this gig in Philadelphia and it was snowing. It was February 1988, Black History Month. So Philadelphia gets cold. I mean, it was thick with snow. And for all of those who don't know, there's another one for you to look up on Wikipedia. I had this thing called a Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> We're big fans of the Walkman on this show. Oh, we missed okay. the Walkman. <laughs> so yeah, so we had the Walkman, you know, and I had the, uh, I had the cassette on the Walkman of Stanley Clark. Um, and and the track Streets of Philadelphia, you know, and I'm walking through the streets of Philadelphia, Philadelphia. trudging through the snow, on tour with Richie Havens and Gil Scott Heron, listening to Stanley Clark's Streets of Philadelphia. I was saying like, again, it was just a moment that like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't prepare for, you couldn't create a moment like that. It just, it was just a moment that just happened. It's like where everything just aligns into this perfect synergy between you and your music and, and, and you're one with your music, you know what I mean? And um, and and you're in the, the actual environment, the, the streets that Stanley Clark trod when he, when, he, when he sang that song, when he made that song.
couple of years later, um, I was producing uh, my album, um, Rhythms of the Diaspora, and I was doing it out in New York. I was at Wycliffe John's um, studio, Platinum Sound, mm -hmm. in, um, in, in New York. And um, as I'm there, I'm in one studio and the studio next door, which is all within the same complex, Stanley Clark was there. <sighs> so I went in and got to meet him and everything. I was like, oh, Stanley, man, I'm, you know, big fan from back in the day. I'm doing this uh, album, you know, next door. Um, this is my situation. I work with Bill Scott Heron, blah, blah, blah. Would you be interested in just giving me a little drop on my album? And he was like, yeah, man, no problem. He came in the studio and he was like, you know, this is Stanley Clark, you know, giving a shout out to Malik and the OGs, you know, Bill Scott Heron, Last Poets, blah, blah, blah. And on my album, on volume two of, of my uh, album, Rhythms of the Diaspora by Malik and the OGs, there's an intro there by Stanley Clark from, from that day. And that's how it all kind of, again, it came full circle you know it all yeah. linked in with um, you know with the streets of philadelphia and and again it's a mellow track um it's you, you wouldn't think he was singing about a city you know you, you just you would think that this was something about you know because because it's so it's so vibesy and so um you know so uh kind of mellow that you would think that you know someone like strolling through the countryside or something mm. But, you know, he's talking about being a player from the streets of Philadelphia, one of the most musical cities in America, um, producing some of the greatest artists, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that takes me back, you know, to, to, to 1988, to that tour. Um, wonderful, wonderful memories. That, that is, I mean, that is just delightful on, on so many levels. And I think um, what, what I'm finding really heartening about all this is quite often you hear it said you know never meet your heroes you'll always be disappointed and it's so lovely to hear someone who's not only met them but really been uplifted by them and become a peer of them and you know you've you've um you kind of made some strange escape that you used to have to get away from the troubles of your life you've made that into a ladder to climb out of that hole really and and wow. and met these wonderful people and, and not just in a passing way you've, you've, you've had a, a meaningful you know coexistence with them i think that's beautiful that's an amazing way to put it actually i never quite looked at it like that but i like the whole concept of uh you know using it as a ladder to get out of that yeah you got copyrights on that <laughs> quick aiming <laughs> take that take it on the front of the next album you're welcome yeah. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure speaking to you I've, i i feel like i've been taken on that journey with you all through those phonographic memories and i also feel like we barely scratched the surface in terms of your mm. musical memory i feel like you probably have about 50 other beautiful serendipitous musical moments <laughs> oh there's so much more you know but we've only got half an hour on this podcast but yeah. you know i'm happy to come on the show anytime and you know anytime you guys want me to come and do anything just let me know and i'll be more than happy we to might have that. to have to tap you up again but listen when's the uh, when's the book out well i can't um disclose the okay. details of when the book's out but it's been announced to the trade okay. um, last week that we've signed with William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins. Uh, the Gil Scott Heron book, I can tell you, will be the first of the two books in the deal um, called uh, Letters to Gil, uh, which will be about my, um, you know, years of traveling the you know the world at sea writing my poetry teaching myself to read and write and sending those letters to Gil for his approval appraisal and then we'd meet up in between stints at sea and we'd go on tour and he'd mark my work and appraise it and mentor me through that process so Letters to Gil is a, is a memoir a kind of coming of age memoir and that would be the first one out and then Searching for My Slave Roots is my uh, roots quest back to Africa back to South America and you know uncovering my connections through slavery to a 
bunch of you know luminaries of, of Britain, the founders of what became Barclays Bank, links to Prime Minister Gladstone, and, and so on and so forth. So that'll be the second one. So it, it, it is intended by the publisher to drop Letters to Gill in 2021. The actual date for that, I'll have to leave it to them. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Well, they but both sound like fascinating projects, and I'm sure we'll both be uh, pre-ordering that Indeed. as soon as we possibly can. More Thank to look forward so to much. in 2021. Things are looking up. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. But we do have a show as well. We've got a Gil Scott Heron tribute show that I'm doing at the Jazz Cafe oh, on brilliant. the 1st of, uh, 1st of uh, April, which is Gil's birthday. Oh, um, and I'll be bringing over um, um, Kim Jordan, uh, Gil Scott Heron's uh, pianist from the Amnesia Express, and also Rod Young's um, Gil's drummer from the Amnesia Express. Amazing. And we'll be performing our set, Malik and the OGs, and then Kim will be playing uh, a set of Gil Scott Heron uh, from his repertoire. And um, tickets are available at the Jazz Cafe on the website there. And it's called the show's called The Revolution Will Be Live. It's a showcase that we put together um, to, to celebrate Gil's legacy. So that's the 1st of April on Gil's birthday. Um, well, I, I hope to be at that. that Me too. I want <laughs> the revolution to be wonderful. live. It's been a while since we've had a live revolution yeah. <laughs> rather well, than I'm, on Zoom. I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping it's not going to be live on Periscope or, you know, yeah. Zoom. Or even if it is, even if it is, I'm sure it will do the trick. Yeah, um, it'll but, be nice. I, I often tell the story that I, I went, I supported Gil Scott Heron as a DJ two times oh, wow. and unfortunately he never showed up either time <laughs> so <laughs> it'll be good this time I'll go to the show and uh, but I won't have any preconceptions of him being there because I well, nothing got, can go wrong we've got a guy from Florida called Carver the Soul Singer and he actually does Gil in some oh, ways wow. better than Gil yeah, because he's got just, a, I mean, his vocal range is, is sort of a bit more broader than Gil's, but uh, so he takes Gil's stuff on a whole nother level and he sounds like Gil. Um, and we've done like a couple of tours with him here in the UK um, from, you know, previous couple of years. Um, so he'll be coming back again, Carb of the Soul Singer. Um, so, you know, for, for the for the set that Kim does with Gil, you'll be hearing um, you'll be hearing uh, Gil's Gil's repertoire um, with this with this guest vocalist. And, you know, and those authentic Amnesia Express sounds because you've got Gil's yeah. drummer and Gil's keyboard player and musical director. Uh, in, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and doing the podcast today. It's really Thank lovely you, to speak to you. And. I mean, just fascinating stories. And like I say, we probably could do another hour and a half on Gil alone, never mind the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's lovely to speak to you and uh, best of luck with the book and the um, the educational aspect. Is it a, a mm -hmm. doctorate you're going for? Yeah, I'm doing a PhD in history at Cambridge. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that. Lots of coffee, that's my recommendation. Uh, coffee and Red Bull, yeah, I'm yeah. all over it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Malik Al Nasser. It's been such a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you, Anne. Thank Cheers, bye-bye. If you enjoyed the show today, then why not find out a little bit more about the music that we talked about? If you check the show notes, you'll find a link to a Spotify playlist and a YouTube playlist for those who don't want to pay their money to the Spotify man. 